Shoes on, get up in the morn, cup of milk, let's rock and roll. King Kong, kick the drum, rolling on like a rolling stone. Sing song when I'm walking home, jump up to the top, LeBron, ding dong, call me on my phone, iced tea, and a game of ping pong. This is getting heavy. Can you hear the bass boom? Woo hoo. Life is sweet as honey. Yeah, this beat cha-ching, like money. Disco overload, I'm into that. I'm good to go. I'm diamond. You know I glow up, hey. So let's go. Cause I, I'm in the stars tonight. So watch me bring the fire and set the night alight. Hey, shining through the city with a little funk and soul. So I'm gonna light it up like dynamite. Whoa. That was that was beautiful, Liz. <laughs> that was a poem I wrote just for you. Yeah, I mean, I I thought that was that was just fantastic. I, I I at first when you started reading, I thought it was like Mayakovsky or something. I was like, no, this sounds a little more modern. And then it had this sort of feminine touch, and I was like, oh, mm. duh, this is Liz. Yeah, I'm very. I was very inspired by Google, actually. Mm-hmm. It's it's pronounced Google, but yeah. <laughs> um. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Greetings. Hello from the 48th parallel. Live <laughs> the on the DMZ. What the 38th? We're on the 48th one though. Oh, we're but we're in North Korea. Yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have been invited to the DPRK. Uh <laughs> and we turned it down, but I went anyway. It's just to sort of like, you know, playing a little footsie with them. Uh Liz Liz Liz, of course, old friends with Dennis Rodman. And so mm, Yes. Through that, uh, we got in. We got an diplomatic and, channels that we worked. Mm-hmm. And I do like. Uh, I I've been involved in. You know, I'm one of like the. I'm I'm pretty good at cavalry tactics, or excuse me, cavalry tactics, uh, horseback uh, mm. riding and stuff like that. And so I am training the uh, the 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 DPRK Army Cavalry Corps. Yeah, you and three other guys. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Rock and roll. Actually, have a huge army. But, but anyways, well, I was interrupted before. I got to say, hello, welcome to Truanon. I'm Liz. My name is Brace. We are joined by producer Young Chomsky. <laughs> I was going to try to do like a, there's like a famous K-pop guy with like Jungkook or something, but I was like, if I try to pronounce Young Chomsky, I'm just, it's, I don't, it's going to be racist unintentionally. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Yeah, probably, that's probably for the best. Anyways, we're Truanon. Yes, that's us. We're here. We're back. Just uh-huh. you and me, baby. Old timey. Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. And and we're actually I mentioned this last episode, but we are smack dab at the end of Music Week, which encompassed mm. two episodes, a full <laughs> week's worth of recording. <laughs> uh, uh, definitely a week that was planned with that in mind. 
absolutely. You guys should see the calendar I got up. We got music week. We got exercise week. We got sports week. We got girls week. Well, that's actually three months. Uh, we got brace year coming up next year. <laughs> really excited for that. And uh, well, it's, well, that's pretty much where it ends, I guess. Um, but yeah, no, this is, this is last episode. Of course, we took you on a little, uh, little trip to the gas lamp cafe. I can't remember. Gaslight cafe for a little bit of no, folk music. I think it's gas lamp, not the gaslight cafe. The gaslight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I, I, I mixed this up cause that's actually the place I take women on dates. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking, I was waiting for that one. Um, but, but today we're taking a trip down to, uh, down to the old peninsula here because we are talking about something that Liz loves. Oh my God. We're talking K-pop. about K-pop. Yeah. That's right. Okay. I gotta say that, um, so, uh, uh, for longtime listeners or even mm-hmm. I think depending on if I have this, if I remember correctly, perhaps even short time listeners, you mm-hmm. might remember our discussion of the nth room uh scandal i guess i don't really know how to describe it scandal uh in south korea earlier this year and last year um and that had some kind of like uh let's say crossover with the k-pop industry and involved potentially some um exploitation uh and abuse of k-pop stars and their involvement in this basically um like a high level sex trafficking blackmail ring through social media, you should listen to that episode. Um, but this is uh, we're we're doing the full deep dive into the K-pop industry, which is quite um, it is much more complicated than I think it presents itself. <laughs> considering mm-hmm. it presents itself as maybe the simplest fucking songs and the simplest music I've ever fucking heard in my entire life. Baby, well, first of all, all right, uh, I, and and Young Chomsky, I need to need you because this is a Patreon episode, and so we cut a teaser for these, and the, so the teaser begins now. Okay, Liz, you with me on yes. this? Okay. K-pop is the single greatest genre of music I've ever heard in my life. Yes, I love K-pop. I it's love great. BTS. Mm. Yeah, and big fans. B- no, excuse me, stands. Mm-hmm. You I know stand. we have to stand. Oh yeah, BTS. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to stand BTS until the day that I kill myself. Yes. It's, it's, it is Monster, Monster X, I really like, too. I liked it, mm. in fact, that they called it Monster instead of Monster. I thought that was a little, little classy of them. Uh, I like the female bands, like Blackpink mm. and FX. Yes. I love them. I love K-pop. Yeah, you standing them until the day you kill yourself is actually, that has some crossover to actual K-pop stars. Yes, that's true. That's true. But this is the the teaser. K-pop is all good, baby. There's nothing wrong with K-pop. We love it, Liz. Look me in the eyes and nod your head and say yes. Yes. End of teaser. End of teaser. So this shit is awful. (laughs) I mean, my God. So I know about K-pop only through the fact that, like, uh, I'm in a lot of K-pop fan, like, uh, TikTok groups and stuff like that. And, like, all the teenage guys I hang out with really like it. But, like, I had never listened to K-pop before before this week. Mm. And I did recognize BTS Dynamite because I've heard that, like, in stores and stuff. But, wow, this is not the kind of music that I like. Yeah, no, it's pretty bad. It's weird. I was, I, we were talking about it earlier, and I was saying, like, there's something very, especially BTS, 
which is maybe like the highly or like highest evolved version of what we mm-hmm. will call what we call K-pop and we'll get into that history in a little bit. But um there's something like very unsettling about them and the music. I mean, like watching the videos and the way it sounds, like there's it's like everything is so is so highly manicured and like so every little like no hair out of place no no mm-hmm. sound out of place everything and, and it almost feels like you're watching like machines like there is something yeah. very unsettling about the quality that i can't really place well um, it, it it to me it seems like a more refined version of like the backstreet boys and stuff like that you know what i mean like if it's yeah, like if I've, they finally it really reminded me of that like these sort of manufactured boy groups but like with the advent, like the rolling on of this industry and the way that it's refined itself, it's like, this is just the way to do it now. Like they figure out the market solution. Yeah. For some reason, I think it's like, yeah, it refined and refined and refined. Like it feels very like if Backstreet Boys was the first generation of the iPod, mm-hmm. then BTS is like the iPhone 10. Like they already got rid of the iPod. We're just yeah. on the iPhone 10 or 12. I don't know what the fuck we're on. Anyway, it's the mm-hmm. newest iPhone. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, it is like yeah. a whole nother. Uh, it's like a whole nother thing. I, I listened to probably, I'm going to say five hours of K-pop mm. in the past week, which I know doesn't sound like a lot. Actually, probably more than that. Because one time I took a really long I mean, walk. a song is like three minutes. So yeah, that does sound like a lot. That's true. Yeah, yeah, true. And and and, and I, I found that, like, I thought it's weird because all of these bands will basically do songs in the style of whatever's really popular right now. Like, BTS has a trap song, which is really excellent. Um, and, like, they, like it, some of them sound like Nicki Minaj and stuff like mm. that. And, and it made me just, like, I felt, I mean, I'm not, I I mean, to be clear, like, I am not, I am a, I I, I like, I'm a rock, I like rock music, you know, a rock Mm. and roller. Uh, But I can appreciate stuff, you know, I like the Monkees, they're pretty good. Mm. I don't really like, like, I like their earlier, shittier stuff better than, like, their psychedelic Yeah, I mean, I'm a popist, not a rockist, if we want to bring it back to that age-old... Horrible uh, debate. Debate that, no, yeah, no one No one wants to have again, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, but, But, um... But this is like I don't know. I want to link. We're gonna, I want to link to one of the videos, which is it just came out two days ago, and I you know I've been talking to the boys about this all day because it blew my mind. This interview that the UN or not even interview. I don't know this. It's a speech, baby. I was going to call it a propaganda piece, but yes, okay. Well, let's be diplomatic. Yeah. A speech that BTS did on behalf of I'm not even totally sure uh, for Some the UN, UN agency, general. Yeah. yeah well, the UN just had the General Assembly by Zoom, which is very funny. Um, and they trot out BTS uh, to offer some words of wisdom. And it is just very weird. The whole thing mm. is very weird. It's about like 10 minutes long. Uh, I couldn't tell you a single thing they said, but, but the whole thing is uh, very unsettling. But that being said, we are not talking about K-pop because this we're going to just... You know, this isn't uh, about our taste level or like what what kind of music we like or doing music reviews. Like yeah. we're talking about the K-pop industry because it's actually, um, you know, like we said at the beginning of the show, more complicated, but like rife with exploitation and um, and abuse. 
and it's a really harrowing industry. Um, it, it, it's much, it seems much more explicit in its, um, exploitation than even Hollywood, which is saying a lot. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, it really struck me because I mean, as I've made clear, not a big K-pop guy, but I actually felt a, a, a pretty large degree of sympathy for pretty much all the people that I read about yeah. here because oh my God, this absolutely. is really, I mean, this is, this is about as close to slavery as to slavery as you can get in the musical world. And, and the fact that there is such a giant industry around this and it's such an important part of South Korea's not only uh, economy, but their soft power worldwide and domestically for that matter is 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 that there's such tremendous pressure for for people to join these groups and once you join these groups it's almost like doing your patriotic duty in a way mm. but but it's really i mean it 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 slots right in with the sort of like semi-colonial culture that that yeah. that exists in South Korea um and it's 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 just really heartbreaking yeah i think a good way to kind of start framing this is maybe if we i mean you know I think we kind of have to is just give a little bit of a brief kind of introduction to some South Korean or really Korean, we should say, mm-hmm. history. Um, because it kind of, it's hard to understand exactly what the K-pop industry means to contemporary South Korean uh, culture, but also, like you mentioned, um, you know, their economy without kind of situating this development historically. Yeah, and and before before we start too, I want to especially uh, concerning where we talk about the actual K-pop industry in this, we were helped in our research a lot by Owen. So shout out Owen for uh, mm, yeah, for thank help you with so this. much. Um, but but yeah, I don't think we can really talk about this without talking about some some Korean history. And uh, without getting too far back in time here, let's just start at the 20th century and really with with the the mo- sort of modern history of colonization of Korea which is, you know, famously done by Japan um, from, from very early in the 20th century until the uh, end of World War II. Uh, Japan treated Korea like it treated a lot of its colonies uh, really, really poorly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, people, people lived in sort of penury and semi-slavery, almost essentially a feudal system. Uh, Korea has a long tradition of intellectuals and of mm-hmm. uh, a sort of political vibrancy uh, and that was, of course, not, uh, let's say, yeah. encouraged in, in Korea. Um, a lot of Koreans actually did join the join foreign struggles during this time, but it was really sort of just Asian struggles. Some people who later became pretty prominent politicians in South Korea uh, fought alongside the Japanese in, in uh, Manchukuo. And uh, some people who later became leaders of North Korea fought alongside uh, Mao Zedong and... and um, and sort of his liberation armies in China, along actually with a lot of Japanese soldiers who deserted and stuff. Uh, of course, World War II, end of that, sees the country bifurcated uh, with the North under uh, Soviet uh, sort of jurisdiction and the South uh, seeing Western troops introduced. And from there, it basically becomes like a bastion of anti-communism. Yeah, we should mention, or I want to mention that like prior to what we know as like the official what in America, what we call like the kind of official date of the Korean War, which was like, I don't know what, 1950, 1953. Yeah. Um, Prior to that, there was a lot of, I mean, what you could call revolutionary violence on the, on the border of the bifurcation. Right. Mm. Because, um, and we don't really include that in our, like that was happening prior to the Americans getting involved in Korea. 
Um, and they really came in, I mean, offering up uh, and, you know, trying to basically support the South in, in their antagonism against the North. And, and to be clear, like a lot of the people who were in charge of the South at this time were people who had collaborated with the Japanese occupiers. Yeah. And this, of course, is not popular uh, uh, for many of the workers and peasants in the South. Uh, but they are basically anybody who is against the government is rounded up tens and thousands of communists, but really more like, especially if you listen to the Spider Network series, uh, suspected communists, which can be basically anybody who's poor, are put in jail. And hundreds of thousands of political opponents are formed into something called the Bodo League. And many of them are just straight up like just massacred during, especially during, during the war there. Um, this has, this was done under U S supervision, essentially. Like the U S would send Jeep loads out of soldiers, advisor, listen, U S advisors in any part of Asia basically spells, you're going to be killing some peasants, you know? Um, of course, the Korean War starts in 1950. That war sees about 5 million people dead. Uh, a huge percentage of the cities, especially in the north, are leveled. Um, one, one notable statistic from that, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, for, By the way, the U.S. almost assuredly used chemical weapons uh, during that war as well. Uh, the U.S. actually dropped 635,000 tons of bombs and 32,557 tons of napalm on the peninsula, more than they did during the entire Pacific War. Uh, there's, a, there's a really sort of illuminating quote from, from Curtis LeMay, who was an Air Force general uh, in, in Korea about his time there. Right at the start of the war, unofficially, I slipped a message in, quote, under the carpet in the Pentagon that we ought to turn SAC loose with incendiaries on some North Korean towns. The answer came back under the carpet again, and there would be too many civilian casualties. We couldn't do anything like that. So we went over there and fought the war and eventually burned down every town in North Korea. Anyway, some way or another, and some in South Korea, too. We even burned down Busan, an accident, but we burned it down anyway. The Marines started a battle down there with no enemy in sight. Over a period of three years or so, we killed off, what, 20% of the population of Korea as direct casualties of war or from starvation and exposure? Over a period of three years, this seemed to be acceptable to everybody, but to kill a few people at the start right away, no, we can't even seem to stomach that. So the war was essentially like, I mean, it, there, there was there was huge amounts of casualties during that war. Yeah. I mean, Korea is not a giant place, and just a ton of people fucking died. Uh, of course, we all know that Korea, the American soldiers stayed there after the armistice. By the way, there's mm-hmm. no peace deal after the armistice was signed. Something I don't think a lot of people know is that American soldiers in Korea love committing sex crimes. Yeah, this is a big issue. At the like, you know, it's not just. Um, I, I think people think that you know American soldiers. They kind of understand the DMZ, and so they think, okay, you've got what you know, either UN peacekeeping soldiers, which don't get me started on their own sex crimes. Shouts to WikiLeaks on that one. Um, But also, there's this idea that the Americans are just sort of like patrolling the DMZ or something. It's like, Mm -hmm. no, this is a full-on occupation and has been since 1950, right? Absolutely. Like this is a full like it's like U.S. military is fully integrated into into south korea 
Yeah, and, 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 and the thing is, too, if you're an American soldier over there and you rape a woman at a nightclub, which is something that has happened like countless times, yeah. you can just run back to your base and you will not get arrested by the South Korean police. And yeah. this is a big deal. I mean, imagine, I mean, Christ, imagine you're a South Korean and this is, you know, someone, someone, someone rapes you or someone rapes someone you know, and then they're basically allowed to be spirited away back, back to America to maybe, maybe face some trouble there or more likely just get it, you know, buried under the rug. Same thing happens in the Philippines too. Yeah. I was going to say, to be clear, like this is not uh, an instance unique to South Korea, um, but I will say that it is, uh, it happens all the time with any American <laughs> occupation. And um, yeah, sorry. It's, yeah. So, one thing too is that a lot of people, I mean, there's, there's you know, countless fucking, you know, if you're, if you're a Westerner, I'm sure you very much understand all of the propaganda we get about the DPRK, all that stuff. Uh, but a lot of people maybe not, are not so familiar with the fact that South Korea was literally a nationalist dictatorship. I mean, still kind of is, but was like a full-on, out-in-the-open nationalist dictatorship since the end of World War II until about the late 80s, when it had to sweep it under the rug a little bit. Right. Uh, it was led by a guy named Syngman Rhee for a long time. By the way, my pronunciations of people's names are not going to be great. Fucking sue me. I, I, what am I supposed to do? We're doing our best. We're doing our best here. Um, anyways, it, he, he does something that basically all of his, his successors did as well, which is arrest all of his political opponents, assassinate people who he views as a threat to his political power, and squash all dissent. Mm. Uh, in about April 1960, though, there are mass protests that erupt in Korea, which eventually lead to America pressuring Syngman Rhee to resign. Uh, Democratic elections bring a guy named Yon Posun to power. Uh, by, by the way, this is in 1960. One year later. There is a coup by a section of the military, which bring a guy named Park Chung-hee to real power, even though Yon uh, Pusan, excuse me, Yon Pusan stays on as a figure, uh, figurehead. Park had been, of course, a collaborator with the Japanese army in Manchukuo. Yeah. So this is also right around the time, I mean, not coincidentally, when uh, the Korean CIA was established. <laughs> it rules that they just call it the Korean CIA. <laughs> Like the Amer- I mean, it makes it clear. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, this is something I want to stress and that I think we should keep, we'll keep stressing is that like, or maybe this, I don't know, maybe this is out, you know, out of the timeline, but it just came into my mind and I want to say it is that like, uh, people have to understand that like Korea is, Korea was, is, I don't know, it's difficult to talk about now that it's, you know, split, but like, it's one of the longest, like longest nations in all of history, right? I mean, it's like Japan in that way, where it's like, you know, it, it, it is, um, it has a very, I mean, centuries and centuries, you know, people think Western Europe is old. What the fuck are you talking about? You know what I mean? Compared to a place mm-hmm. like Korea, right? And from basically the beginning of the 20th century on, it has been a series of, you can call it, you know, a colony, or you can call it, you know, in the case of, I think, post-World War II, a client state of the West, right? Absolutely. So, you know, I think we're going to get into this and the ramifications there, but I I just really want to stress that, like, you know, as we're seeing these kind of, you know, successions of dictatorships unfold and their relationship with the West, as, you know, is the case with mm, majority of dictatorships in the world, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like, you have to understand that, like, something was stolen like very much from these people right absolutely and absolutely. i just like want to like i don't know 
South Korea doesn't really get talked about in that way. And I just want to stress that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, 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 you can really see, especially when you, you talk about like a lot of the spider network stuff or whatever, about how much like this, this um, American anti communist movement or really American led anti communist movement uh, was able to integrate South Korea and stuff like that. And, and mm. the, the, vast, the vast majority of Koreans like desire some form of reunification. I mean, it is one nation, you know, just split in two. Um, but but basically, they, they can't really do much with, without the U.S. I mean, it is yeah. a semi-colony. We have troops permanently stationed there. Right. And, you know, if, if it, it is, it is I, I, don't, I think people just view that as sort of like a neutral fact that like, oh, well, there's troops there because they're on the DMZ, whatever, like the South Koreans want them there. I'm like, well, I'll tell you what, if, if, if the South Koreans asked for U.S. troops to leave, do you think that they would? Yeah. You know, look at when Iraq does it. Um, you know, we still have free reign over there. Well, anyways... The Korean CIA, like you said, gets established in 61. Uh, and then, of course, this, this, this machinery of repression and, and suppression and oppression uh, gets really refined in the, in the next 10 years. Uh, there's an election in 1971 where, where, where President Park Chung-hee spends 10% of the national budget to, to just barely defeat his opponent. I mean, that is, we call that big booing where I'm from. Yeah, poor budgeting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways, he does when he establishes something called the Yushin Constitution, which really consolidates his fucking power. About eight years later, Park Chung-hee is having some goddamn dinner inside a Korean CIA safe house in the like government building of South Korea when a bunch of Korean CIA agents uh, take out some pistols and just start blasting, blow his fucking head off, uh, blow up a bunch of other guys away. And, you know, it creates this big crisis because, you know, this guy's been a dictator for dictator for, for a long fucking time. And so, you know, it's essentially like a military-led state. And, and you know, there is an investigation uh, led by a guy named Chun Du Huan, who is an ROK Army general. And uh, he heads this, like, really powerful uh, investigatory committee, which has basically, like, uh, super plenipotentiary power. I actually don't know what super plenipotentiary means, but I often see it used in context of investigation, so I'm going to use the word. Uh, he uses this to arrest a bunch of his political opponents. He becomes head of the Korean CIA, uh, and he, he starts talking about, oh, there's North Korean agents coming in here. Like, we got to go into martial law. And so he puts the whole fucking country under martial law. Um... Yeah, so I want to pause on this guy for a second because yeah. this is kind of where some of the kernels of K-pop start coming from, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, Chandu Huan is uh, really repressive, right? And he institutes this thing called the 3S plan, mm -hmm. which basically has the policy of... Um, it's sports, sex, and screen, right? Whoa! So that that's the that's the policy, and the idea being, and and, and you know, it's funny because 
it, it's actually really similar to what was the uh, 3F policy. Under I like the, this one better. <laughs> the Salazar dictatorship in Portugal. Mm-hmm. Frugality, fucking, and friendship. Uh, no. Okay. Oh, that's the Israeli one. Sorry. Fado Fatima football. So very similar. Uh-huh. See, I'm on the 3L, live, laugh, love, baby. Mm-hmm. I'm on the 3L, Liz uh, loves losing. Sorry, that would came out meaner than I thought <laughs> it would. I thought I was just going to be like, Liz uh, loves, lo- like, but I, could, I was going to say lozenges and lozenges. I can't pronounce that word. Lozenges. Uh, and then I was like, well, that's not very funny. And so I had to make a split second decision and it, and it came out mean. So I'm sorry, Liz. <laughs> Yeah, so basically the whole idea of the 3S or the 3F is that it's, um, it's, you know, it's under the guise of kind of like what they would say modernizing and, and you know, having and creating a cultural, you know, cultural national identity and, you know, all of this stuff. But um, a lot of governments put forth this thing sort of in a way to kind of, I mean, I wouldn't say dumb down but at least divert mm. people's interests away from social maladies and away from political instability or political uncertainty uh, into what you would just, you know, sports, sex, and entertainment, right? So this is the classic uh, Belden method, bread and circuses sort of thing, where I distract everybody. <laughs> bread and circus. Yeah, bread and circus. <laughs> this, is, this is where I, the B and C method. Uh, because so when I was briefly steward of San Francisco, what I did is everyone got really mad at me all the time because I kept making gaffes. And so I brought seven different circuses to town and and had them all compete for who would be the best clown, who would be the best giraffe, etc. Meanwhile, I also just ordered people to only eat bread so everyone got too fat to kill me. Classic. Oh, my God. Okay, well, so basically the whole idea is that, so during this like eight year of Chun's dictatorship, you've got, uh, you know, all of the pro baseball and pro soccer leagues start popping up. They, there's a huge bid. And in 81, they, you know, there's a huge cultural push. They get them the Summer Olympics in 88, which is a mm-hmm. big deal. There's color TVs everywhere. Uh, you've got basically the, the in, you know, the sex industry becomes a major, major part of South Korean culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you've got, you know, more uh, explicit movies, more like crazy entertainment and people really like fueling this kind of um, new. I, I mean, I, I don't know how else to put it. I keep thinking of it as like shock therapy, but for like cultural identity. Yeah, yeah. It's like I, I can very see what you weird. Mean. It's like a complete and total like okay, now the government is just all in shock therapy. The pop culture 100%. This is now who we are. Right? Well, it's it, it makes sense too from their perspective because like I mean, flooding the market with like consumer goods that distract people. I mean, it has a pretty I mean, fucking look at America, baby. Like it's it's I mean, it, it, it works here to an extent. I mean, people, I think, think that they're politicized in some context, but it really is just like another part of like, you know, sort of our pop culture. Mm, yeah. So uh, film curator Kim Sang-chul of the Korean Film Archives, she put it this way, well, being completely repressive politically, the regime thought it was necessary to provide an alternate outlet for the public to express their oppressed desire. So this takes the form of live TV sports, broadcasts, sexual sexual movies, etc. 
And so that was kind of the the push. And to be clear, this was also kind of taken up by the Japanese. And in fact, the guy who advised uh, Chun on this was a Japanese, uh, you know, I don't know how else to say this, war criminal because he spent 11 years in Siberia after mm-hmm. World War II. Do you know what you had to do for the Soviets to put you in Siberia after World War II? <laughs> well, technically not, that not much. much but <laughs> <laughs> that was the joke. Uh, but they were right to do it. Uh, he was, yeah, he was a real, let's say, uh, son of a bitch. Yeah, his name, I, again, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Ryuzo Sejima. But anyway, so he, you know, he was a key advisor to Chundu Huan. Uh, and, and, you know, allegedly, reportedly, is the um, mastermind behind the 3S. He was a military guy. Um, and, and later on, he, he went on to be the, the key advisor to Nakasone in Japan in the 80s. And, you know, that was, of course, when Japan privatized every single, um, basically every single industry and everything, every single publicly owned uh, anything uh, in Japan. So good guy. So that that helps kind of p- to put into context what comes next with Chu Du Quan. You know, like we said, there is a martial law. He puts the whole country under this. Most people stay inside except for one city, Guangzhou, where people are really not happy about all of this. And at first, uh, there is sort of like a pro-democracy movement that's mostly led by students. And they start going onto the streets. Later, they're joined by workers and, and really by all sections of society. Uh, and, and, uh, Chu Duquan is not, not impressed by this. He asked the U S army to, to let him take his most seasoned paratroopers off of the DMZ and send them to Guangzhou to teach the protesters a lesson. Soldiers invade the city and just start like blasting on people from helicopters. They make special clubs to beat the shit out of people with, uh, and they start bayonetting workers and students one soldier says uh according to an eyewitness report this is the bayonet i used to cut 40 Viet Cong women's breasts with now of course the rok had sent troops to to uh to the vietnam war to fight alongside the uh the americans and they, they committed some pretty bad massacres themselves they even killed a cop who tried to stop them but of course they were backed up by about eighteen thousand riot police and three thousand paratroopers the, the, the protesters failed in thousands. I, I don't think they fully know the exact number yet, but like thousands of, of South Korean citizens were massacred. And of course, this is just one massacre in a long line of massacres of the sort of South Korean citizenry, but it's the latest one uh, sort of, and the, the, it's kind of the most pressing to what we're saying. Uh, because eventually, Chu Du Kwan loses loses power in the late 80s eventually he's pa- part uh, excuse me sentenced to death but pardoned by uh for his role in the massacre and then we really get into the modern era and, and when liz there said here about the three s's one of those uh one of those sort of bread and circus type activities that that there were were these things called talent shows uh mm. and of course i'm sure you're all very familiar with talent shows but but this this was really where the k-pop industry got its start um, the, one of the first sort of precursors to K-pop was a rap group, uh, f- from the nineties, which I've, I've watched some of their music videos. I can't remember their name right now. It's, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, but then they start forming these idol groups and that really brings us to where the industry is today. So I, Liz, I think we should just kind of go over a little bit, a bit about like top level stuff about the fucking K-pop industry. Yeah. Okay. So, um, we should say that it is basically 
South Korea's largest export. <laughs> it is, um, you know, has about, they, I think it's all told, given an, about a net worth of $5 billion, uh, projected to generate about tens of billions of dollars for the economy in the coming years. Um, but in terms of the specifics of the industry, there's basically three major companies, which are like kind of colloquially referred to as the big three. There's JYP Entertainment, YG Entertainment, mm -hmm. and SM Entertainment. Those are just some little specifics. Um, uh, BTS, well, we're going to keep referring to them because they really are like the mega star. I mean, they're the, the biggest of of all of the K-pop stars, it seems. Yeah, to be clear, they they actually themselves make three point four billion dollars a year for South Korea out of those billions. So I it's mean, they're so a insane, hot fucking commodity. Yeah. Uh, they're also really good. <laughs> well, so there's those three major companies, but then there's like basically all these smaller companies trying to make it big, which we'll get into some of the difficulties there, and also like um like kind of offshoots of managers trying to get into these smaller companies, potential agents trying to make it big. And then of course the entire industry of the star of potential stars themselves. So to be clear, like, I mean, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've heard of K-pop, right? Like K-pop is huge around the world. I read a statistic that 7% of all visitors to South Korea uh, in 2017 were there not just because of K-pop, but specifically because of BTS, uh, which is wild to me. Uh, it's just, I don't know that, that, that statistic blew my mind. Cause like, what are you going to do? You're going to meet them. You know, I went to Memphis, I guess. And I went to, you've been to Graceland. Yeah. Graceland's great. Actually, you know what? Yeah. I've been to Graceland. So, but I didn't go to Memphis because of Graceland. <laughs> Uh, there's also a place called Graceland Two, where the guy will—he has like a bunch of Elvis ephemera. I don't know if I've talked about it on the pod before. He at one point had a pillow that had what he claimed was Elvis's uh, semen on it, mm. and he would go there. He was famous for like if you go to—he lived in a trailer, and you go to his trailer, and you could wake him up at any any point, I think, and he would kind of let you in to look at the, look at the museum. It was just like all his Elvis stuff. But he had a, a really frightening tendency of pulling a gun out on you and saying he was going to shoot you with it. And he did this to several people I know. And then eventually he did just shoot somebody. Oh, shit. Um, but I think he got off and then I think he died. Oh. Yeah. Tennessee rocks, man. Really great place. <laughs> you don't see that happen in Hollywood, baby. <laughs> All right. Well, back to this thing with K-pop. I think, you know, before we kind of get into, um, you know, the kind of the, how the larger industry functions, like we should talk about actually how these bands operate and, mm -hmm. and their relationship with the talent, because that's really um, what, what we're talking about here, right? Yeah, so so the way that you kind of get into K-pop, it's not like in America where you are forced to do it by your mother. Here, you're forced to do it by both your mother and a large company. Um, it is, it's so, so the way you start off usually is you start off as what's called a trainee. And usually they're like, start from around 10 to 16 years old, but they can start younger. Uh, the, the, the training regimens that they have for these kids are like horrific, right? Like 
I, I don't know about many of our listeners here. I was not a great high school student, uh, and I certainly was not a great at after school stuff. But what they make you do is they make you get up at like six in the morning, run for a couple hours, and then go to school all day and then just train for the rest of the night. Yeah, I mean, I think the like best way, the best comparison would be like when kids are potentially going to be Olympic stars, which are also kind of yeah. like national uh, symbols or symbols for their nation, potentially, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, you're working, you're, you're, you know, theoretically going to school, although some of them don't, uh, you know, learning how to sing, learning how to dance for like 16 hours a day, right? Yeah. Um, and that's when you're like a kid. That's like before, that's before you've even like talked to, anyone associated with a record label or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. That's just like after school practice and stuff. And that's, what's so crazy about this to me, because like the one, there's a lot of threads that kind of go through this whole thing, but, but one of them is really like how just incredibly isolating this industry is for people. Because I mean, imagine if you're like, you know, 10 years old and you get into this, all you're doing is just practicing over and over and over and over all day, every day, seven days a week for years in order to become an idol uh, obviously you are not having a very good social life or anything like that. And there's schools for people like this too. Like there are some like academies, but a lot of the time it happens like after school with people, you know, taking their kids to, to some trainer or whatever to do it. Um, and, and it's just, it's, it's, it's insane. And, and you, you're basically modeled your whole life for this. It's like universal mm-hmm. soldier. Actually, yeah. I haven't seen that movie in a while, so I'm not exactly sure it's like Universal Soldier, but it's like movie. how I what imagine Universal. It's got John Claude Van Damme in it. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, he's a pretty big K-pop star in his own right. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, so it's not just the singing and dancing, like you mentioned, but it's also like forced dieting and also forced plastic surgery. Um, yeah. And that's also a really big thing that is quite unique to this industry. I mean, I guess it's comparable with Hollywood, but it's... It seems much more um, systematized and, and and kind of like bureaucratized in the in in how it's kind of done in the K-pop yeah, industry. The K-pop industry reminds me a lot, sort of, of the old studio system of Hollywood, mm, but yeah. also kind of mixed with like a lot of the way things are done now. Uh, the thing is, though, like you say, it's it's really bureaucratized and systematized, and so like these things are really hammered out. So like, there's a very specific look that you get if you're a K-pop mm. star, yes. and you got to get to that look one way or the other. There's one one this one woman, Wendy of this of this group, Red Velvet, said she was only allowed 350 calories a day. Which is, yeah, I mean, that's starvation. I mean, it's twice as much as I eat, but yeah, I mean, it sounds like I don't do all these like dancing and stuff. Uh, yeah. I mean, because imagine you're eating 350 calories a day. It's not like you're just eating that, like drinking a soylent and going to work at like Facebook or whatever. Like you're dancing and, and, and exercising and singing on a level that like most people will never, ever come close to putting that much effort into anything. And it's insane. Yeah, there's a reason why a lot of people refer to these as what what's called slave contracts, right? Mm-hmm. And so this was actually like a rumor for a long time that 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 uh, these idols or you know I just want to say these kids, right? That these kids had to sign what they called slave contracts with these um, you know K-pop companies. Um, and it wasn't really clear until I think it's 2017, a former K-pop star, Prince Mac, came out and basically confirmed it. Um, 
He said they could, you know, that these contracts range from like anywhere between seven and 15 years. So 15 mm-hmm. year contract that basically when you're a trainee, like we've said, when you're when before you've even like become famous, when you're still that trainee level before you become an idol, like Brace was saying, is that the company doesn't even start counting that those years as a trainee as part of your slave as your contract. Right. Yeah. And you're also like paying for all this stuff essentially yourself, even if you're taken under the wing of a label, except the big three sometimes don't do this. But like 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 Liz said, there's a lot of other smaller labels out there, uh, like midsized ones and sort of small ones. And uh, they charge you for all of that. So like everything from your headshots to your dancing lessons, all of this is basically racked up into this huge, 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 huge amount of debt. And, and, you know, sometimes companies will spend millions of dollars creating these groups and you're expected to pay quite a lot of that back. And that doesn't really start until you join the, you know, join the group and you get big. And a lot of the times, you know, in your sort of this like liminal space between like actually like debuting or whatever, you're paid something like $5 a day. It's just absurd. And the contracts themselves... I mean, when I found this out, I, mean, I was shocked. I mean, it's not honestly that different than America. Um, a lot of the times it's really common for an 80%, 20% split between the companies and the bands. And Sometimes it's remi- 90-10, actually, yeah. which is which even is crazier. crazier. Because you're like, okay, that's like very little money, but if you're making billions of dollars, it's still a lot. Well, it's also split between like five to sometimes upwards of almost a dozen people. Yes. Now, and also, like Bryce mentioned... That pay doesn't kick in until you've paid back all that you owe to the companies for paying for your training, right? Mm -hmm. So we've talked about how this works with the modeling industry and how women get indebted to these agents and these agencies paying for, you know, transportation for ghosties and and paying for headshots and paying for, you know, whatever, and then becoming indebted to their agents. Um, This is like that times... 20. Yeah. Like the, yeah. The, the, I mean, we're talking about like 30, 40, $50,000 in debt for years of training while you end up basically being on contract with these people in a debt slave contract for your entire young adult life. Well, the thing is too, being a K-pop idol has something of an expiration date. It's generally thought to be around 28 years old, but, but the, but that has a lot to do with the fact that the, the Republic of Korea has conscription and you have to join the army if you're, I, I believe, definitely if you're a man, I'm not sure if women have to join as well. Um, but the, that, like, you can't escape that. In fact, there's been all these articles lately out too about how BTS has some members that are going to be forced to go. They actually talked about this, like, in the halls of government, how they're actually going to have to make some of them go into the army as well. And so, you know, you go, I mean, Christ, honestly, being in the army sounds probably less restrictive than being some of these, you know, in some of these K-pop contracts. Um, but, but you have this real expiration date on the amount of money you can make in that period of time. And, and so it's, it's really difficult to, to actually really get anywhere being a K-pop idol. Yeah, you, I mean, you mentioned the conscription thing. Um, and, and that's certainly true. And basically, uh, I mean, some of it is that, yeah, there's that hard date at 28, but also some of it is that, you know, for a lot of women, they tend to age out of this, uh, of being kind of like celebrity acceptable 
at a really young age, right? And this industry is, I mean, it's brutal for everyone involved, but it is incredibly brutal to the women involved. Yeah, absolutely. Something I was sort of like, I think we talked about this briefly in the Nth Room episode, uh, or a lot. I actually can't remember. But but seeing the statistic again really jarred me. Was that something like 30 to 50% of Korean women have had some kind of cosmetic surgery? Yeah. Which is which was really just jarring to me. I guess the most common kinds are double eyelid surgery, which I'm not really sure. What is that? Um, so that's when basically... Um like creases are formed within that, like for the eye. So many like Korean women don't have like pronounced uh, creases and the culture finds that more desirable. And so a double eyelid surgery, like basically goes in and like defines the eyelid crease substantially. The other most common form, which I was honestly like really appalled to read this is no surgery. And to me, that's like, like one of the foremost uh, sort of what I call subtle forms of anti-Semitism in the world today is anybody in any country ever getting a nose job. It's just a true, unless they're making it bigger. Are they making them bigger? No. By the look on your face, that's a no. No, no. They're always making them slimmer. (laughs) Mm. Little Disney noses like Miss Meghan Markle. I, I, one time I was, uh, I was walking down the street uh, with a, a paramour. Uh, and, uh, and a, a couple pair of women walked past us and one looked at me and said, see, I don't want a big nose baby. <gasps> yes. Are you serious? And that could, if I was a lesser man, that could have really wounded me. However, in my research, I realized that pretty much the only reason women like me is because I have a big nose, which like in the medieval times when a big belly symbolized wealth, in my case, that's what the nose symbolizes. First of all, what's wrong with a big nose baby? Sounds funny. Sounds great. Sounds like a gnome. Like yeah, a for also, great sense of smell. Mm-hmm. I, well, that's the problem. It's the, that uh, women, I mean, I think that's the reason. It's like, well, it could be more, you know, able to be really good at doing cocaine, which is not great for a baby. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's... that's uh, You're the, my the, big nose baby. It's, it's a symbol of potency. Oh. Uh but also, I read that, and this is actually pretty similar to America, I think, with lip fillers, uh, is that rich parents get their kids surgery a lot of the time, you know, when mm. they, like, graduate high school or something like that. But, but the crazy thing is, is, like, imagine you become an idol in one of these groups, and your boss is like, all right, you have to do this, 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 and this. I mean, that happens in America, too. Like, don't get me wrong. But, but it's much more systematized out there, uh, mm-hmm. from what I understand. And of course, I mean, I'm sure everyone can see this coming, that is that, that, that these industries are r- rife with sexual abuse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it doesn't take a lot to imagine what happens to young women in these quote-unquote trainee programs and, mm-hmm. you know, how that um, compounds the uh, training that they get in order to kind of fulfill this character that is, you know, become popular in the K-pop kind of fantasy which is like you know a young girl who's not too sexual but a little sexual enough you know that Mm. can be a lot of fantasies can be projected on but is still like safe for kids like it's a very delicate balance um that i think you know a lot of our female listeners will be well aware of yeah and that's that that's the thing it's like there's a like you're not allowed to date when you're a k-pop idol or a trainee right 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 
And that's specifically about the for the women, by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they, they have they have much less leeway. Although the the guys don't have much either. Um, but but that's a lot, right? Like you are you are basically for the entirety of your youth, not just your childhood, but for your youth, not allowed to date. And whether that means you can never have sex is sort of unclear. But certainly, you can never give the impression that you ever are. Uh, the backlash if if you are caught dating somebody is is intense and severe. Companies hate it because they you know it, it possibly affect their bottom line in some way. The paparazzi will give you insane negative attention, extra attention. Korean internet users hate it, and uh, oftentimes there's a backlash from like the general public. Uh, something you said there too is like that women are supposed to have these be, people be able to make projections on them. Right. Yeah. And we, we see that a lot in, in not, I mean, certainly not just the K pop industry, but somebody both, ha- both has to be like, uh, like, like unavailable, but also like maybe at any time willing to have sex with you. Yeah, absolutely. You have to put, you're able to put any sort of sexual fantasy, perversion, urge, or like neuroses that you have onto these people, but they also have to be chased in a way. And so it's, it's this really, I mean, it just goes down from even the way that they, they make them look. I mean, basically everyone's hairless. Um, it's, it's very sculpted in this specific way by plastic surgery and, and everything's so like, you know, manicured and, and mechanized that like, it it really is just like, I, I mean, when I when I look at them, I, don't, I I I can't really understand how you could project sexual desire on them. But, yeah, uh, I mean, I was gonna say there's something that feels very like denuded about a lot of the K-pop yeah. stars, and I don't know. I mean, I don't you know, I don't want to say like I don't want to go too far, but the, I mean, knowing it's difficult watching these videos and watching these performances after you read the details of these, you know slave contracts and you understand the amount of abuse that these kids undergo including like you know physical and sexual abuse i mean there's rampant rape rape and sexual assault uh in in the in the industry and and you know most of it isn't reported on because you know it's like in hollywood where it's you know that's that's what happens in order to move up in the ranks Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's it's really similar a lot of the time. I mean, we we've talked a lot about in the show is that the Weinstein sort of Me Too thing was basically a, like a sin eater type situation where it's like, well, this guy did all the bad stuff and now he's out of here, and like right. we sort of cleansed ourselves. Yeah. No. Like, it's, no. They're all Weinst- fucking Weinstein. No. Why? Yeah. Exactly. Weinstein just took the fall for the industry writ large. Who. You know, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed in Hollywood. I mean, it was largely successful, too. Yeah, absolutely. Like, Like, you know. uh, Yeah, don't get me started on that. If they actually (laughs) wanted to change anything that had to do with, like, power relationships in Hollywood, you would be changing how films were financed. You wouldn't be changing whether or not Shonda Rhimes was the head of a fucking studio. Like, get out of here. I mean, it's just... It's such a fucking joke, and at the expense of, as always, the bodies of young girls. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's this is this is specifically, I think, really in K-pop terms, at least, like really a lot of young girls have been heavily affected by this. I mean, we we mentioned this on the Enthroon episode, but there was the burning the burning sun scandal, right? Uh, w- which involved a nightclub where 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 
people, the nightclub owners and a bunch of male K-pop stars would drug and rape girls and then share around pictures of them, uh, you know, and videos of, of them doing the act and stuff like that. And that's a big revenge porn is huge in South Korea. I mean, yeah. we, we talked about this specifically a lot on the Anthroon episode, but it's like a really big uh, way of, I mean, I guess both per- consuming pornographic content but also like i don't know as as a tool it's against like people. maybe the most extreme there's something about revenge porn and like sexual sexual blackmail that gets at some that is that gets at something very um like uniquely disturbing because it really is about having a very um specific and like unwavering control over someone else, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Uh, you know, and I'll just say like I, I, a lot of people, and I've seen this with even you know a lot of uh, left, you know, left leaning people and and leftist men, and the way that they characterize revenge porn, you know, is that it's like you know just a new mutation of um things that like young kids are doing and i just want to say that like it, it it's very it's different in in kind i would say rather than um you know kind of degree that like there is um the idea of like having the power to ruin someone's life to mm-hmm. like show a their father his daughter like naked doing something sexual is a very unique form of power and control that's really, really depraved and should be treated as very different in kind, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like a lot of this kind of ties into to this pair of suicides that sort of rocked the K-pop world recently. Um, it was a pair of female idols both killed themselves in about a month month apart period. Uh, the first was a former K-pop singer, this woman named Suli, uh, and she was recruited out of acting as a child, which is something that you see a lot. A lot of people will start maybe in like a different entertainment career, and then their parents will kind of like transition them into K-pop. She was she she was uh, basically placed in a group called FX that was run by SM Entertainment, one of the big three that we were talking about. They debuted in '09, uh, and and were pretty popular. She left the group in 2015 and then ran a TV show called Night of Hate Comments. So that's like a big thing that happens too when people retire. Is you know you're you're done by your late 20s, and so you have to transition to some other kind of like usually entertainment career. So she ran a TV show called Night of Hate Comments, which I think was kind of like on the lines of like the Jimmy Kimmel reads mean tweets thing, which by the way, those are all made up, right? Like no one's being like, you're a, cause they're like, mean tweets are being like, your dick is small and you're gay. Like, it's not like, <laughs> there's some really good uh, basketball ones. Actually, the NBA ones are very funny. Yeah, but aren't they all just like, I just, I guess I don't just like, isn't everyone just racist on the internet? Like, I don't understand where they're finding, like, they must really try to find ones that are both mean, but like, okay to read on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fine balance. Uh, She put out a solo album uh, and was, of course, immediately subject to a huge amount of threats, uh, stalking and angry comments by people who were angry at her for posting an Instagram video of her not wearing a bra, but wearing a t-shirt. I guess she was 
she 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 sort of made it like an issue of hers that like women had to wear bras and stuff like that. Um, she uh she she was really like I mean like like in a lot of basically all over the world is 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 Korean people can be very passionate on the internet when it comes to celebrities, and uh, and they were just like merciless in in treatment of her, and uh, and she she killed herself. Uh, about a month later, a friend of hers named Guhara, uh, and she was a, was a member of a, a K-pop group named Kara or Kara, uh, committed suicide herself. And she had posted a lot about bullying too, and about native attention she was getting. Her ex-boyfriend was threatening to spread revenge porn of the two of them having sex. She sued him for blackmail uh, and for threatening her and inflicting bodily harm. Excuse me, he was charged with blackmail threatening her and inflicting bodily harm. But like we were talking about the fucking Nth Room case, the courts just let him free. And this is something that happens a lot in South Korea, is that someone will get busted for one of these crimes, and then, bam, they they just get let go. Um, The charges kind of get dropped. She posts a video of, or excuse me, a picture of herself on Instagram saying, sleep tight, and then the next morning is found dead. Um, And I think that this pair of suicides is, is really... I, I think they're sort of emblematic of a lot of the issues within K-pop because there are people who have basically been denied anything like normal lives, uh, who've sort of been sacrificed uh, kind of at this altar of not only entertainment, but national industry. I mean, this was called, uh, I can't remember, it was called like uh, Export Without like Chimney Stacks or something like that uh, by, by one of the first like Korean economic ministers that really was able to, to, to elucidate or elaborate or whatever upon this phenomenon. Uh, I mean, they, they're, they're really, I mean, this is, this is akin to like somebody killing themselves essentially because of work. And like, I just want to say, I mean, K-pop is huge. K-pop, you know, you see every time, you know, someone tweets something that people don't like, you know, there's a billion fan cams or whatever under it. There's K-pop people everywhere, but like, it is an industry that is essentially built on slavery and, and, and really just like, I think almost uniquely harmful essentially to its participants. I mean, it's really like it, it uh, essentially everything I read in preparation for this episode and not all from like negative sources or whatever was just really heartbreaking to read. It's just awful. Yeah. I also want to put in some context here. It's like, you know, we keep saying that it's this huge cultural export, but like it really is like, it is a big fucking deal. And to illustrate that, I'll just say that, uh, you know, Moon Jae-in, President Moon, uh, in June of 2019, signed an unprecedented $8.3 billion deal with Saudi Arabia, right? This is a really big deal because Saudi Arabia is trying to, um, you know, look, Bin Salman has all of his ideas about pushing Saudi Arabia into the future, what mm-hmm. he calls getting off oil dependency, but, you know, whatever. He's going to greenify the fucking Gulf, et cetera, et cetera, whatever, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To make the but deserts cr- bloom. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, women driving everywhere, just what mm-hmm. the world needs. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> At but least you so- got to say it. <laughs> no, so, you know, Korea, you know, they see Korea as a strategic economic partner in this. And for Korea, you know, it makes a lot of sense, Right. Um, so 8.3 billion in contracts and deals were signed between Bin Salman and Moon Jae-in in June 2019. In December of 2019, Bin Salman requested BTS to play a New Year's event. And they did. 
But, you know, I, I mean, I think it's important for people to understand that, like, you know, and look, the, the South Korean government is investing a lot of money into this industry. I mean, there mm. are massive government subsidies. There is an entire uh, K-pop wing of the fucking government. Like, you know, the cultural uh, culture minister has devoted a lot of time and effort into expanding and um, making sure everyone in the K-pop industry, a.k.a. protecting these fucking billions and billions of dollars in exports, is, mm. are, you know, that all these people are happy. Well, except for, of course, the singers. Yeah, the actual people doing the K-pop. Another thing that I just want to maybe end on is that, like, you know, we didn't just give an overview of 20th century Korean history at the beginning because, you know, we want to, like, teach people about history. Like, it's important to understand this context. Like, Korea was robbed of modernizing themselves, right? They are a colony since you know, basically since the beginning of the 20th century, you know, 1910, whenever the, the you know, Japanese uh, colonized, uh, turned Korea into a colony. They were complete. you know, this was like a people, again, a people with a very, very, a centuries and centuries long history that were robbed of modernizing and industrializing their nation mm-hmm. through imperial, the imperial Japan, Japanese powers, and then after, you know, with the Korean War, the West and the and American interests getting involved. And now, look, you understand, with without the, the ability to modernize and industrialize, the same thing happens with, you know, the way your culture develops. Mm-hmm. And what you see is this imposition. I mean, that's what I was trying to say with the shock doctrine. It feels like a Western imposition of national culture that we see being exported from South Korea. And it does not surprise me, given the historical development of the Korean nation of South Korea, that what we see then is a large cultural export of just rampant exploitation and literal slave contracts. Whoopa Gangnam style. <laughs> uh, actually, I, I want. Can I make a request here? Is so I I I said earlier. Well, I said a couple of things. I said I like K-pop, and then I said I didn't like K-pop. But but I do like one K-pop song. In fact, I love one K-pop song. Uh, can we cue Barack Obama saying the name of that K-pop song? Gangnam Style. <laughs> Again. Gangnam Style. Again. Gangnam Style. Again, damn it. Gangnam style. Thank you. Oh, that was can you fun. do it? Whoopa Gangnam style. Like, I can do the, I didn't, I just started doing a, what, like a, a can you do the dance? Right there. Uh, all right, let me try. You have to narrate this so there's no dead air. But okay. I'm going to stand up. Well, we'll have, Young Chomsky can throw the music in. Okay. 
Oh my god, Briss is... I don't know what he's doing. That's the Gangnam style. I don't think that is. Well, I have to, like, kind of hunch because the way my computer that was, like, is on the desk. That was, like, weird, like, limp wrist. It was, like, kind of like a... Um... I thought you had to do it like limp wrist. Okay, I'll do it hard wrist. But if I'm doing a hard wrist, I'm just doing this. It's just X arms. You have to do it limp wrist. Hold on. How... Let me... No, this is bullshit. Don't fucking say I'm doing it limp wristed, Liz. First of all, <laughs> that's got some connotations. Second of all, Psy gets plenty of pussy. Third of all, Psy uh, Gangnam style. Hold on, I'm gonna keep talking while I look this up so that we don't have to edit this out. I am watching Gangnam style. I did fucking Gangnam style right. Oh wait, yeah, I did Gangnam style right. No wait, oh it's like this. Yeah, see, it's oh, not. Oh, it's oh, not I'm like, doing the horse. I, I can't. Yeah, do this. you were like riding a horse while like. I thought while, like, for some reason I thought I haven't seen the actual music. I thought it was like a horse riding type situation. No. Well, you're fucking riding me. Wait, so fucking... you're, wait you're like, oh, uh, I'm going to do the Gangnam Style, but you've never seen the dance? Well, not like seven years, yeah. Oh, my God. I listen to Fairport Convention, What's the new Liz? Gangnam Style? Uh, the, uh, so, the Stanky Leg. People no. are bringing the Stanky Leg back. <laughs> what year is it? What year is this? Uh, it is tw- 2012. It's 2012, Liz. You're having a Wait, dream. did you see? There was this really funny... I saw this really funny headline on, like, The Hill or whatever. And mm. it was, like, you know, Trump... Some, something stupid about uh, something Trump said. Like, Trump refuses uh, to leave office or whatever, mm. bastardization of whatever Trump said. And then they was, like, ask Biden what his comments. <laughs> it just said, what country are we in? <laughs> <laughs> I just love the idea of him genuinely asking what country we're in. <laughs> Did you see the video of him telling, uh, saying clap, you stupid bastards, to an audience? Yeah, that's got to be an old video, right? I, I don't know. It looks like a new one. I don't know. I, I, I don't think he's like made any public appearances recently. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think he has. Well, it's anyways, like a racehorse cool. thing because they got to shoot him up with you know meth and Adderall or whatever on Tuesday for the debate. Well, they, oh, yes. They, you know what? They should just give him meth. I literally think they do, dude. They don't give him meth. They probably give him like a little like B12 shot, which. By the Are way, you, that is not B12 we saw in that debate against Bernie Sanders, dude. S- sweetheart, I have taken so much methamphetamine intravenously. Yeah, <laughs> literally I think that pounds is what Biden of it. Was on. No, dude, he's not. Tw- if he was on meth, he would be doing something. I'm going to explain to you a little thing called carpet surfing. Okay. Carpet surfing. Let, let me talk. Let me talk. No, let me talk. No, let me talk. No, let me talk. No, let me talk. 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 Let he, uh, so there's a thing called carpet surfing is where you like, you do all your meth, but then your brain does like this thing where you're like, actually, I have more meth. I just dropped it. And you think it's on the ground. And so if you ever like walk down the street and you like see a guy like looking in the cracks of the pavement, he's doing what's called, well, it's just the pavement version of carpet surfing where he's looking for meth. So if Joe Biden got on his hands and knees and started like looking through the cracks of the linoleum floor or whatever for a little bit of shard, then he's on meth. But as it is, he's probably just on Adderall. Okay, here's my okay counter. Mm-hmm. Have do you have Alzheimer's? Me? Yes, dude. And you've noticed no. that I forget half. The, like <laughs> no, you don't. I what speak- I'm saying is, a, I want to see what a demented mind does on meth. Because what I'm what I'm saying is, if your brain is here and that's what you do on mm-hmm. meth, now demented brain maybe regresses back, and so it on meth is only at like. Do you see what I'm saying? 
Baby, baby, baby. How, how do you, first of all, I'm flattered, but second of all, I'm like literally two brain cells away from dementia. So it's no, like, you aren't. it's oh my not God. that different. Meth makes you stupid. Like, it okay, puts holes my point in being, okay. mm-hmm. I'm very excited to see what they shoot him up with on Tuesday. And I fully support Professor Dr. Trump's call to have him drug tested. Did he ask for him to get drug tested? <laughs> yeah, you didn't, did you, did you miss that? No, yeah, he was like, we should both take drug tests. I don't know what he was on when he was debating Bernie. That rules. Do, do you remember? Do you remember that picture of uh, of Trump and there's like an open uh, drawer and he's got like Sudafed from Europe in it? Oh my god, yeah, you know that dude's hopped up too. Oh, absolutely. But I'm saying, like, remember he the sniffing on- in the debates and he was like, "What? It's fine." And he's like. <laughs> Yes, yes. He's. I mean, what I'm saying is he's probably on a ton of Sudafed because he knows that he can mm. pass a drug test. It's yeah, like yeah, when yeah. I used to snort my roommate's Wellbutrin when I was living at the halfway house because it felt like cocaine for about two seconds before it gives you diarrhea and makes you really bad sweaty because I knew it wouldn't show up on a drug test. Oh, my God. Let, let's end this before I say too much. Wait, are you going to watch the debates? Yeah. Uh, do you want to? It's on Tuesday night? Yeah. Let's all watch them together. Let's watch it. Let's watch it on a let's like screen share or whatever. Yeah, maybe we can do that. Oh, maybe we can do that. No, sorry. <laughs> never mind. No, actually, no, I, I, I'm sorry. No, I'll do that with my friends at another podcast. <laughs> Call her daddy. <laughs> I'm excited to see it because I will say this. I think there's a very good chance. We're just going to keep this episode going. It goes long. Yeah, whatever. Brace and I haven't just chatted in a while, so this is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a very good chance that Trump baits Biden into saying something crazy. Because Biden has a crazy temper. Yeah, he can get pissed. And Trump does the like little baby moves. Oh, yeah, he'll say something crazy. But no, but his crazy temper ends up with him being like, whoa, there, partner. Like, he doesn't, he's not like, no, 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 he does get angry. He gets angry and then says something that makes no sense. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it should be I, fun. I think it's, it's, and then Trump it's, never makes sense. So, is there like a topic for the debate? I haven't, it really doesn't feel like uh, it's probably about know. 5G coronavirus. Get the info. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. Um, they should, uh, Biden should cough on Trump if he's really, that's what I've said. I said, I said, Biden if, should if, fucking wear the mask the whole Hillary time. Could, oh, yeah. Oh, dude, if Trump <laughs> takes off the mask during the debate. No, they can't. No, neither of them will be wearing masks. But it would be so oh. funny if Biden wore the mask the whole time. That would be amazing. Yeah, of course, neither of them would be wearing masks. But like, that's, I've always said in, in 2016, if Hillary Clinton said that, that asked Trump to suck her dick. During a debate, she might have won. Like, I honestly believe that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Biden just has to just just be like, he just has to say Trump has a small dick. Because that will get both of them in a loop for hours. Yeah, I think they could just out, out crazy each other. I mean, they yeah. could just get in a spiral of like, it's like, you know, old timey fights where it's like, you, yeah. you know, the fists are up, Fisticuffs, upright. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sort of it would like be a, like that, but I mean... Just, I, I I also like, kind of think that they might just get along. <laughs> they might. I don't think well, so. I, Trump has been sharpening his little skills lately. I was watching one of his um, campaign speeches, and he was it was in Ohio, and he was saying like, I mean, he was you know back on talking about NAFTA and shit or whatever, and um, you know he's like, why would you vote for Biden? He took all your you know doing this whole thing, so he's getting ready. Yeah. 
you know. Well, I'm sure he'll do that, but I just like I don't know. I it's just Biden's just like so hard. I think to get like mad at face to face because just he reminds you of somebody that you'd see like really confused at a bus stop. <laughs> you'd be like, are you that all right, is, man? That's like, like, oh, that's yeah, that is underrated quality. Exactly. So it's like Trump could like Trump might feel bad. Um, and this then is Biden all also- just to tease, by the way, the upcoming two-part True and None election special. Oh yeah, very true. Where we we talk Howie Hawkins and Joe Jorgensen. <laughs> yes. Should you vote for them and how? Also, what's up with the alliterative names? Five <laughs> G coronavirus. Get the info. You see, you, you see, Joe Jorgensen said that she would put uh, what's his fucking name, uh, Dershowitz, on the Supreme Court. Yeah. First of all, what kind of libertarian loser believes in the Supreme Court? Ah, they're all cucks. They're all just shades of the same shit. Yeah, I mean, it's like I if I was running for president, I'd be like, yeah, no, no Supreme Court. The only libertarian uh, candidate I would trust to be a real libertarian would be the blue guy. A blue guy, like from Blue Man Group? No, no, the guy who turns himself blue from colloidal silver. Oh yes, yeah, I know a girl who kind of did that too. There was a homeless guy uh, in San Francisco for a while that looked so much like the blue guy. He wasn't blue, but he had that uh-huh. kind of white, like um, old timey, like gold, like prospector, gold yeah. prospector vibes. And I swear, I swear to God, I swear to fucking God, he wore long johns and had like cast iron pans on him. My, I would always call him paddles. And I would mm. see him walking around the mission and I'd be like, oh my God, there's paddles again. And it would be like, clang, 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 clang. Wait, I know who, I know who that is. Yeah, it's paddles. Yeah. Whoa. I haven't seen him in a long time. In LA, there was a guy that looked like Jesus. Well, that's not, I mean, it isn't everyone in we LA. Call, everyone wear, called like, him Jesus. No, he was like, like a homeless guy that walked around like Jesus. Because in, in my head, like LA is just filled with people in like white saris and shit mm-hmm. like that. And like, yeah, with, like, this kinda... guy was just, I don't even, he was wearing, he would just wear like um, a toga. Mm, that's like, what I'm saying. Bottom, but, but only bottoms. Oh, that's just called a towel, Liz. <laughs> a toga s- drapes over your, your You're breast. Right. You're right. And, and she has one titty out. How'd they deal with that? Well, remember Ashcroft covering that up? Oh, yes. Dude, that was one of the most egregious abuses of civil liberties. (laughs) Civil liberties. Civil. Civil civil liberties. Well, that's our name. uh, Of Sybil's liberties that I've ever... (laughs) They... When when I thought... Sybil's liberties. That sounds like an NBC sitcom about, like, you know, (laughs) a well-to-do, like, late girl boss lawyer on the come up. Sybil's liberties. Uh, I, well, fuck, I should get, I, uh, one day I hope to be the subject of like, uh, a freak of the week or monster of the week type, like, um, <laughs> a lawyer show where they're like, this oh, guy yep. did this just really outrageous crime. And we're kind of going to do like a fictionalized version of it. But like, as it stands now, like if I killed my podcast co-host, like no one really like, hey. I mean, like that's fu- I, I'm, I don't, I do more than one podcast, Liz. I could be talking about any number of women. Oh my God. Um, but I, uh, specifically two different women who were both former co-hosts of Call Her Daddy. One currently is alongside me. The other one and I, we're working on a secret project together. Anyways, I would, I would love to be the, the subject of one of those. But I feel like they would make me look too, like, dorky. Like, they'd play up, like, sweaters or something. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's what they would play. That would be the bad thing that they played up. Oh, my nose. No. <laughs> so we're back to this. <laughs> We're back to this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get you a nose job to make it bigger. 
No. But <laughs> what? Uh, what? Why? Oh, okay. So that actually wasn't going to do that. That was me testing you to see what your reaction would be. Obviously, you didn't really seem to be cool. So what would be wrong with that? I just, I like my nose. But wouldn't you like more of it then? Like, I like my face. <laughs> I'd love a second face. Man, Ashcroft was crazy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he was a total nut. Sometimes I think about that with the Bush, with the Trump admin, and I'm like, yeah, Trump. all the Trump admin people are insane. Bush admin people were really insane, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean... They're like it, the Ur-Trump admin. It, they were like... I don't know. The Trump admin is just less Christian. And mm. so, like, it's less like... You just yeah, get, like... Yeah, that was, like, the soft... The, like, what, what was, uh, like, compassionate conservative bullshit. They kind of yeah. dropped all that. Yeah, they don't. I mean, what's well, you got Grenell now? You know, it's like who gives a fuck? That guy's yeah. not like. Uh, I mean, that guy is such a dork, man. I can uh, I could beat the shit out of that guy. What's the guy with the eye patch? What's his name? Uh, John Stossel. No, no. Uh, Dan Crenshaw. Dan Crenshaw. <laughs> yeah, you see his his TV ad. Yeah, it's awful. Oh my god, he jumps out of a plane. I, it's, everyone wants to be. I he he was a seal. You know that he was a was fucking really? Navy seal. Yeah, was he really? He absolutely was. It was, and you know how I feel. I'm not going to do the chick chick because his people will find it and then ruin my life. But I will. Do you see what I'm holding up to the? Actually, it's Brace's diary. Yeah, I'm holding up pages where with it has Dan Crenshaw in cursive with a big old heart around it. This is me writing in my diary. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, My name. Is Brace Belden. My address. <laughs> I'm Liz. Uh, we are joined by producer Young Chomsky, who just made a really weird noise on our podcast while I was speaking of showing my diary. I'm not sure why he did that. Um, and the podcast is called uh, Something That's Not Truin' On. Please don't sue me. <laughs> I don't know what Brace is doing. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>